Chapter 5 of Elsie Venner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Elsie Venner by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Chapter 5 An Old Fashioned Descriptive Chapter. It was a comfort to get to a place with something like society with residences which had pretensions to elegance with people of some breeding with a newspaper and stores to advertise in it and with two or three churches to keep each other alive by wholesome agitation rockland was such a place some of the natural features of the town have been described already the mountain of course was what gave it its character and redeemed it from wearing the commonplace expression which belongs to ordinary country villages beautiful wild invested with the mystery which belongs to untrodden spaces and with enough of terror to give it dignity it had yet closer relations with the town over which it brooded than the passing stranger knew of thus it made a local climate by cutting off the northern winds and holding the sun's heat like a garden wall peach trees which on the northern side of the mountain hardly ever came to fruit ripened abundant crops in rockland but there was still another relation between the mountain and the town at its foot which strangers were not likely to hear alluded to and which was oftener thought of than spoken of by its inhabitants those high impending forests hangers as white of selborne would have called them sloping far upward and backward into the distance had always an air of menace blended with their wild beauty it seemed as if some heaven-scaling titan had thrown his shaggy robe over the bare precipitous flanks of the rocky summit and it might at any moment slide like a garment flung carelessly on the nearest chance support and so sliding crush the village out of being as the rossberg when it tumbled over on the valley of goldo persons have been known to remove from the place after a short residence in it because they were haunted day and night by the thought of this awful green wall piled up into the air over their heads they would lie awake of nights thinking they heard the muffed snapping of roots as if a thousand acres of the mountainside were tugging to break away like the snow from a house roof and a hundred thousand trees were clinging with all their fibres to hold back the soil just ready to peel away and crash down with all its rocks and forest growths and yet by one of those strange contradictions we are constantly finding in human nature there were natives of the town who would come back thirty or forty years after leaving it just to nestle under this same threatening mountainside as old men sun themselves against southward-facing walls the old dreams and legends of danger added to the attraction if the mountain should ever slide they had a kind of feeling as if they ought to be there it was a fascination like that which the rattlesnake is said to exert this comparison naturally suggests the recollection of that other source of danger which was an element in the everyday life of the rockland people the folks in some of the neighboring towns had a joke against them 
that a rocklander couldn't hear a bean-pod rattle without saying, The Lord have mercy on us. It is very true that many a nervous old lady has had a terrible start, caused by some mischievous young rogues giving a sudden shake to one of these noisy vegetable products in her immediate vicinity. Yet, strangely enough, many persons missed the excitement of the possibility of a fatal bite in other regions where there were nothing but black and green and striped snakes, mean ophidians, having the spite of the nobler serpent without his venom, poor crawling creatures whom nature would not trust with a poison bag. Many natives of Rockland did unquestionably experience a certain gratification in this infinitesimal sense of danger. It was noted that the old people retained their hearing longer than in other places. Some said it was the softened climate, but others believed it was owing to the habit of keeping their ears open whenever they were walking through the grass or in the woods. At any rate, a slight sense of danger is often an agreeable stimulus. People sip their creme de noyau with a peculiar tremulous pleasure, because there is a bare possibility that it may contain prussic acid enough to knock them over, in which case they will lie as dead as if a thundercloud had emptied itself into the earth through their brain and marrow. But Rockland had other features which helped to give it a special character. First of all, there was one grand street which was its chief glory. Elm Street, it was called, naturally enough, for its elms made a long, pointed, arched gallery of it through most of its extent. No natural Gothic arch compares, for a moment, with that formed by two American elms, where their lofty jets of foliage shoot across each other's ascending curves to intermingle their showery flakes of green. When one looks through a long double row of these, as in that lovely avenue which the poets of Yale remembered so well, oh, could the vista of my life but now as bright appear as when I first through Temple Street looked down thine espalier. He beholds a temple not built with hands, fairer than any minster, with all its clustered stems and flowering capitals that ever grew in stone. Nobody knows New England who is not on terms of intimacy with one of its elms. The elm comes nearer to having a soul than any other vegetable creature among us. It loves man as man loves it. It is modest and patient. It has a small flake of a seed which blows in everywhere and makes arrangements for coming up by and by. So in spring one finds a crop of baby elms along his carrots and parsnips, very weak and small compared to those succulent vegetables. The baby elms die, most of them slain, unrecognized or unheeded, by hand or hoe, as meekly as Herod's innocence. One of them gets overlooked, perhaps, until it has established a kind of right to stay. Three generations of carrot and parsnip consumers have passed away, yourself among them, and now let your great-grandson look for the baby elm. Twenty-two feet of clean girth, three hundred and sixty feet in the line that bounds its leafy circle, it covers the boy with such a canopy as neither glossy-leafed oak nor insect-haunted linden ever lifted into the summer skies. Elm Street was the pride of Rockland, 
but not only on account of its gothic arched vista in this street were most of the great houses or mansion houses as it was usual to call them along this street also the more nicely kept and neatly painted dwellings were chiefly congregated it was the correct thing for a rockland dignitary to have a house in elm street a new england mansion house is naturally square with dormer windows projecting from the roof which has a balustrade with turned posts round it it shows a good breadth of front yard before its door as its owner shows a respectable expanse of a clean shirt front it has a lateral margin beyond its stables and offices as its master wears his white wristbands showing beyond his coat cuffs it may not have what can properly be called grounds but it must have elbow-room at any rate without it it is like a man who is always tight buttoned for want of any linen to show the mansion-house which has had to button itself up tight in fences for want of green or gravel margin will be advertising for boarders presently the old england pattern of the new england mansion-house only on a somewhat grander scale is sir thomas abney's place where dear good dr watts said prayers for the family and wrote those blessed hymns of his that sing us into consciousness in our cradles and come back to us in sweet single verses between the moments of wandering and of stupor when we lie dying and sound over us when we can no longer hear them bringing grateful tears to the hot aching eyes beneath the thick black veils and carrying the holy calm with them which filled the good man's heart as he prayed and sung under the shelter of the old english mansion-house next to the mansion-houses came the two-story trim white-painted genteel houses which being more gossipy and less nicely bred crowded close up to the street instead of standing back from it with arms akimbo like the mansion-houses their little front yards were very commonly full of lilac and syringa and other bushes which were allowed to smother the lower story almost to the exclusion of light and airy so that what with small windows and small window-panes and the darkness made by these choking growths of shrubbery the front parlours of some of these houses were the most tomb-like melancholy places that could be found anywhere among the bodes of the living their garnishing was apt to assist this impression large patterned carpets which always looked discontented in little rooms haircloth furniture black and shiny as beetles wing-cases and centre tables with a sullen oil-lamp of the kind called astral by our imaginative ancestors in the centre these things were inevitable in set piles round the lamp was ranged the current literature of the day in the form of temperance documents unbound numbers of one of the unknown public's magazines with worn-out steel engravings and high-coloured fashion-plates the poems of a distinguished british author whom it was unnecessary to mention a volume of sermons or a novel or two or both according to the tastes of the family and the good book which is always itself in the cheapest and commonest company the father of the family with his hand in the breast of his coat the mother of the same in a wide-bordered cap sometimes a print of the last supper by no means morgan's or the father of his country or the old general 
or the defender of the constitution or an unknown clergyman with an open book before him these were the usual ornaments of the walls the first two a matter of rigor the others according to politics and other tendencies this intermediate class of houses wherever one finds them in new england towns are very apt to be cheerless and unsatisfactory they have neither the luxury of the mansion-house nor the comfort of the farmhouse they are rarely kept at an agreeable temperature the mansion-house has large fireplaces and generous chimneys and is open to the sunshine the farmhouse makes no pretensions but it has a good warm kitchen at any rate and one can be comfortable there with the rest of the family without fear and without reproach these lesser country houses of genteel aspirations are much given to patent subterfuges of one kind and another to get heat without combustion the chilly parlor and the slippery haircloth seat take the life out of the warmest welcome if one would make these places wholesome happy and cheerful the first precept would be the dearest fuel plenty of it and let half the heat go up the chimney if you can't afford this don't try to live in a genteel fashion but stick to the ways of the honest farmhouse there were a good many comfortable farmhouses scattered about rockland the best of them were something of the following pattern which is too often superseded of late by a more pretentious but infinitely less pleasing kind of rustic architecture a little back from the road seated directly on the green sod rose a plain wooden building two stories in front with a long roof sloping backwards to within a few feet of the ground this like the mansion-house is copied from an old english pattern cottages of this model may be seen in lancashire for instance always with the same honest homely look as if their roofs acknowledged their relationship to the soil out of which they sprung the walls were unpainted but turned by the slow action of sun and air and rain to a quiet dove or slate color an old broken millstone at the door a well-sweep pointing like a finger to the heavens which the shining round of water beneath looked up at like a dark unsleeping eye a single large elm a little at one side a barn twice as big as the house a cattle-yard with the white horns tossing above the wall some fields in pasture or in crops with low stone walls round them a row of beehives a garden patch with roots and currant bushes and many-hued hollyhocks and swollen-stemmed globe-headed seedling onions and marigolds and flower de luces and ladies delights and peonies crowding in together with southern wood in the borders and woodbine and hops and morning glories climbing as they got a chance these were the features by which the rockland-born children remembered the farmhouse when they had grown to be men such are the recollections that come over poor sailor boys crawling out on reeling yards to reef topsails as their vessels stagger round the stormy cape and such are the flitting images that make the eyes of old country-born merchants look dim and dreamy as they sit in their city palaces warm with the after-dinner flush of the red wave out of which memory arises as aphrodite arose from the green waves of the ocean 
Two meeting-houses stood on two eminences facing each other and looking like a couple of fighting-cocks with their necks straight up in the air, as if they would flap their roofs the next thing and crow out of their upstretched steeples and peck at each other's glass eyes with their sharp-pointed weathercocks. The first was a good pattern of the real, old-fashioned New England meeting-house. It was a large barn with windows, fronted by a square tower, crowned with a kind of wooden bell, inverted and raised on legs, out of which rose a slender spire with the sharp-billed weathercock at its summit. Inside, tall, square pews with flapping seats, and a gallery running round three sides of the building on the fourth side the pulpit with a huge dusty sounding-board hanging over it here preached the rev perapont honeywood d d successor after a number of generations to the office and the parsonage of the rev didymus bean before mentioned but not suspected of any of his alleged heresies he held to the old faith of the puritans and occasionally delivered a discourse which was considered by the hard-headed theologians of his parish to have settled the whole matter fully and finally so that now there was a good logical basis laid down for the millennium which might begin at once upon the platform of his demonstrations yet the rev dr honeywood was fonder of preaching plain practical sermons about the duties of life and showing his christianity in abundant good works among his people it was noticed by some few of his flock not without comment that the great majority of his texts came from the gospels and this more and more as he became interested in various benevolent enterprises which brought him into relations with ministers and kind-hearted laymen of other denominations he was in fact a man of a very warm open and exceedingly human disposition and although bred by a clerical father whose motto was sit anima mea cum puritanus he exercised his human faculties in the harness of his ancient faith with such freedom that the straps of it got so loose they did not interfere greatly with the circulation of the warm blood through his system once in a while he seemed to think it necessary to come out with a grand doctrinal sermon and them he would lapse away for a while into preaching on men's duties to each other and to society and hit hard perhaps at some of the actual vices of the time and place and insist with such tenderness and eloquence on the great depth and breadth of true christian love and charity that his oldest deacon shook his head and wished he had shown as much interest when he was preaching three sabbaths back on predestination or in his discourse against the sabellians but he was sound in the faith no doubt of that did he not preside at the council held in the town of tamarack on the other side of the mountain which expelled its clergymen for maintaining heretical doctrines as presiding officer he did not vote of course but there was no doubt that he was all right he had some of the edward's blood in him and that couldn't very well let him go wrong the meeting-house on the other and opposite summit was of a more modern style considered by many a great improvement on the old new england model so that it is not uncommon 
for a country parish to pull down its old meeting-house, which has been preached in for a hundred years or so, and put up one of these more elegant edifices. The new building was in what may be called the florid, shingle-gothic manner. Its pinnacles and crockets and other ornaments were, like the body of the building, all of pine wood, an admirable material, as it is very soft and easily worked, and can be painted of any color desired. Inside, the walls were stuccoed in imitation of stone, first a dark brown square, then two light brown squares, then another dark brown square, and so on, to represent the accidental differences of shade always noticeable in the real stones of which walls are built. To be sure, the architect could not help getting his party-colored squares in almost as regular rhythmical order as those of a chessboard. But nobody can avoid doing things in a systematic and serial way. Indeed, people who wish to plant trees in natural chimps know very well that they cannot keep from making regular lines and symmetrical figures, unless by some trick or other, as that one of throwing a peck of potatoes up into the air and sticking in a tree wherever a potato happens to fall. The pews of this meeting-house were the usual oblong ones, where people sit close together, with a ledge before them to support their hymn-books, liable only to occasional contact with the back of the next pew's heads or bonnets, and a place running under the seat of that pew where hats could be deposited, always at the risk of the owner, in case of injury by boots or crickets. In this meeting-house preached the Reverend Chauncey Fairweather, a divine of the liberal school, as it is commonly called, bred at that famous college which used to be thought, twenty or thirty years ago, to have the monopoly of training young men in the milder forms of heresy. His ministrations were attended with decency, but not followed with enthusiasm. The beauty of virtue got to be an old story at last. The moral dignity of human nature ceased to excite a thrill of satisfaction after some hundred repetitions. It grew to be a dull business, this preaching against stealing and intemperance, while he knew very well that the thieves were prowling round orchards and empty houses instead of being there to hear the sermon, and that the drunkards, being rarely churchgoers, get little good by the statistics and eloquent appeals of the preacher. Every now and then, however, the Reverend Mr. Fairweather let off a polemic discourse against his neighbor opposite, which waked his people up a little. But it was a languid congregation at best, very apt to stay away from meeting in the afternoon, and not at all given to extra evening services. The minister, unlike his rival of the other side of the way, was a downhearted and timid kind of man. He went on preaching, as he had been taught to preach, but he had misgivings at times. There was a little Roman Catholic church at the foot of the hill where his own was placed, which he always had to pass on Sundays. He could never look on the thronging multitudes that crowded its pews and aisles, or knelt bareheaded on its steps, without a longing to get in among them and go down on his knees and enjoy that luxury of devotional contact which makes a worshipping throng as different from the same numbers praying apart as a bed of coals is from a trail of scattered cinders. Oh, if I could but huddle in with those poor laborers and working women, 
he would say to himself. If I could but breathe that atmosphere, stifling though it be, yet made holy by ancient litanies, and cloudy with the smoke of hallowed incense, for one hour, instead of droning over these moral precepts to my half-sleeping congregation, the intellectual isolation of his sect preyed upon him, for of all terrible things to natures like his, the most terrible is to belong to a minority. No person that looked at his thin and sallow cheek, his sunken and sad eye, his tremulous lip, his contracted forehead, or who heard his querulous, though not unmusical voice, could fail to see that his life was an uneasy one, that he was engaged in some inward conflict. His dark, melancholic aspect contrasted with his seemingly cheerful creed, and was all the more striking, as the worthy Dr. Honeywood, professing a belief which made him a passenger on board a shipwrecked planet, was yet a most good-humoured and companionable gentleman, whose laugh on weekdays did one as much good to listen to as the best sermon he ever delivered on a Sunday. A mile or two from the centre of Rockland was a pretty little Episcopal church, with a roof like a wedge of cheese, a square tower, a stained window, and a trained rector, who read the service with such ventral depth of utterance and reduplication of the resonant letter that his own mother would not have known him for her son if the good woman had not ironed his surplice and put it on with her own hands. There were two public houses in the place, one dignified with the name of the Mountain House, somewhat frequented by city people in the summer months, large-fronted, three-storied, balconied, boasting a distinct ladies' drawing-room, and spreading a table de haute of some pretensions. The other, Pollard's Tavern, in the common speech, a two-story building, with a bar-room once famous, where there was a great smell of hay and boots and pipes, and all other bucolic-flavored elements, where games of checkers were played in the back of the bellows with red and white kernels of corn, or with beans and coffee, where a man slept in a box-settle at night to wake up early passengers, where teamsters came in with wooden-handled whips and coarse frocks, reinforcing the bucolic flavor of the atmosphere, and middle-aged male gossips, sometimes including the squire of the neighboring law office, gathered to exchange a question or two about the news, and then fall into that solemn state of suspended animation which the temperance barrooms of modern days produce in human beings, as the Grotta del Cane does in dogs in the well-known experiments related by travelers. This barroom used to be famous for drinking and storytelling, and sometimes fighting in old days. That was when there were rows of decanters on the shelf behind the bar, and a hissing vessel of hot water ready to make punch, and three or four loggerheads, long irons clubbed at the end, were always lying in the fire in the cold season, waiting to be plunged into sputtering and foaming mugs of flip. A goodly compound. Speaking according to the flesh, made with beer and sugar, with a certain suspicion of strong waters, over which a little nutmeg being grated, and in it the hot iron being then allowed to sizzle, there results a peculiar singed aroma, which the wise regard as a warning to remove themselves at once out of the reach of temptation. 
but the bar of pollard's tavern no longer presented its old attractions and the loggerheads had long disappeared from the fire in place of the decanters where boxes containing lozengers as they were commonly called sticks of candy in jars cigars in tumblers a few lemons grown hard-skinned and marvelously shrunken by long exposure but still feebly suggestive of possible lemonade the whole ornamented by festoons of yellow and blue cut flypaper on the front shelf of the bar stood a large german silver pitcher of water and scattered about were ill-conditioned lamps with wicks that always wanted picking which burned red and smoked a good deal and were apt to go out without any obvious cause leaving strong reminiscences of the whale fishery in the circumambient air the common schoolhouses of rockland were dwarfed by the grandeur of the apollinian institute the master passed one of them in a walk he was taking soon after his arrival at rockland he looked in at the rows of desks and recalled his late experiences he could not help laughing as he thought how neatly he had knocked the young butcher off his pins a little science is a dangerous thing as well as a little learning he said to himself only it's dangerous to the fellow you try it on and he cut him a good stick and began climbing the side of the mountain to get a look at that famous rattlesnake ledge end of chapter five